hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and from around the world. And I can say around the world because at last count, I think we had listeners from 49 countries. I have to hit that 50 in magic number. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show about the texture and vibe about our amazing city. On most programs, Rediscovering New York focuses on neighborhoods, exploring their history and also their current energy. What makes a particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through, neighbor- we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, musicians, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, like today, we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, we've covered and also podcasted uh, subjects like a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York. We had a show on the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which was a hotbed of, of suffrage activity more than 100 years ago, believe it or not. We talked about the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we had a number of episodes during Stonewall 50, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and biking. Bicycles and cycling, wow, that's too... Uh, little faux pas tonight so far. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. And speaking of a musical genre, if you've listened before, you know I've been threatening this for a long time. Uh, Tonight, we're going to go back to a very special time in music in New York, the age of punk and new wave, and how the music scenes in punk and new wave impacted music and New York. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Uh, Our guests tonight have been intimately involved and intricately entwined with some of the first bands of punk and the whole new wave music scene at the time. Uh, Two bands in particular, uh, Blondie and the Ramones. Let me introduce our guests. Our first guests, actually we're going to do something unusual today. We're going to have all of our guests for the whole show. Um, we have two sisters and New York natives, Tish and Snooki Belomo. They were not only in the original Blondie lineup of the 1970s, they have been America's darlings of creative hair color and punk rock pioneers and tastemakers. They opened America's first punk boutique in 1977, Manic Panic on St. Mark's Place, and they went on to start the world's first alternative beauty brand, also called Manic Panic. For over 40 years, Tish and Snooki have delivered their rock and roll lifestyle to the world through their iconic brand. Their legendary hair color, which has remained 100% vegan and cruelty-free since its inception, that's very rare, has helped celebrities including Cyndi Lauper, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Cardi B, Kylie Jenner, and Kim Kardashian stand out in the headlines. Tish and Snooki have been dubbed the Martha Stewarts of punk and still rock the manic panic lifestyle. To this day, they continue to perform regularly, singing with some of music's biggest icons, including the all-star band Blue Coop, consisting of rock and, roll, rock and Roll Hall of Famer Dennis Dunaway, who, by the way, was one of the founding members of the Alice Cooper Group, and Albert and Joe Bouchard, founding members of the Blue, Blue Oyster Cult. Tish and Snooki continue to spread their brand of radical glamour throughout the galaxy. And my third guest today is John Holmstrom. John is a cartoonist and writer. He was one of the founders of Punk Magazine in 1975. It helped launch the punk movement and promoted the Ramones, Blondie, the Patti Smith Group, Iggy Pop, the Dead Boys, and the Sex Pistols, and many other punk bands. And I'm old enough to remember them all. The hand-lettered graphics inspired hundreds of truly designed fanzines, and Holmstrom's artwork for the Ramones influenced many illustrators. Punk also inspired Punk Magazine, also inspired the punk art movement that inspired the East Village art scene that spawned Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, and Kenny Scharf a few few years later. Holmstrom has done a lot since then, and we will talk with John about that. Um, But a hearty welcome to Tish, Snooki, and John. Welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I've been talking a lot about doing a show on punk since I started the, the show in January. And uh, indeed, we're going to focus largely on the golden age of punk, which started in New York around 1974. Um, you're all icons of what was the new music scene and the community that was built up around it and that spawned New Wave. 
Uh, first question I'd like to ask you all is how, well, I know Tish and Stuckey have known each other for a long, long time, <laughs> but uh, how long have you all known John for? How long have you known each other? When did we meet? Yes. Maybe around... Uh, we can't remember the exact day, but I was <laughs> saying earlier, um, <clears throat> Tish and Snooky appeared in the fourth issue of Punk Magazine in a story we did on Blondie. So I knew who they were before I met them. And that, that issue did fantastic because it was the issue we had Iggy Pop on the cover of. And Iggy was the most important cultural icon of punk rock. He came down to CBGB's sometime around then, and it was like the king coming to his kingdom. Wow. I actually saw a great photograph of Iggy. There's a, I was going to talk about a, a, a great punk store on Orchard Street. It's not on St. Mark's Place. Uh, it's called I Need More, Jimmy Webb store. And in one of his dressing rooms, I have a picture on my iPhone. There's a, there's a great shot of Iggy sort of bent over, but it's, it's, it's larger than life. Um, some people say that punk started in New York. Uh, and some people say it started in London, but it really was New York-based originally, wasn't it? Well, we certainly think so. I, I mean, we had uh, the Ramones and the Dictators, and they were all wearing ripped-up clothes and leather jackets. And they went over to the UK, and the kids loved it over there. And they elaborated on it. And they they put their own British touch to it, but I think... The whole down and dirty, real punk look, you know, starting with Iggy and the MC5 and all that was, it was, you know, U.S., U.S. based. And would you say it started in 74? Was that like the, the, the birth of, of, of real punk? That, that was the start of the CBGB scene, which gave birth to a lot of punk rock, but a lot of other culture, too. But I think Patti Smith started putting everything on the map. She did a residency with television for several weeks that got a lot of attention, got her her record deal. Her record comes out in 1975. That's Horses. Yeah. yeah. But before that, she had put out her own single, Piss Factory. And this was kind of a radical thing. It's the DIY movement, do it yourself. And that's sort of what Tish, Snooki, and I all did. I started my own magazine. Tish and Snooky started their own store, their own fashion line, and we just did it. Yeah, and in our store, we would sell 45s that all the musicians would come in themselves and sell to us, like the Cramps. They would do a 45, and they'd come in and sell it to us, and we would sell it. This was in the pre-Tower Record days, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Tower Records would have touched these (laughs) 45s. They were mostly 45s, and, uh, you know, all the bands would come in and sell them to us, and we'd also go over to the U.K. and go to, what was that record store? Um, The one that still exists. They have a place in Brooklyn. What's it Rough called? Trade. Rough yeah. Trade. Yeah, we'd go to Rough Trade and we'd buy 45s of the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and all the bands and bring them back here and we'd sell them and we'd sell fanzines. and we'd. It was more than just a boutique. It was sort of a hangout and we sold anything we liked. I have a story about Rough Trade. They came to the Punk Magazine office very early on, like March 76. We'd only brought out a couple issues. And they were buying thousands of copies of Punk Magazine, air freighting them to London, because London had heard about the New York City scene, and they were all curious about it. But it cost so much to send them by air back then, they were charging these punk rock kids in London like 10 bucks a copy. <laughs> so and they, they were paying r- it. Rough Trade was making money, <laughs> money hand over fist with, with our magazine, and they finally bought a photocopy machine and invited some of the kids in London to make their own fanzines. And that's how the punk fanzine scene started in London. One of, the, one of the earliest bands in the scene in New York was Blondie. Uh, and Tish and Snooky, you were original members of Blondie. How did you get involved in, with Blondie originally? What, what led to you being part of the band? Well, we were in this show called the Palm Casino Review. It was across the street from CBGB at the Bowery Lane Theater. And um, it was this wacky kind of vaudeville show. 
And um, some friends of ours in the show, Gorilla Rose and Tomato Duplenty, were telling Chris and Debbie about us and telling them that we'd be the perfect backup singers for them. So they came to the show and met us afterwards and invited us to their rehearsal. And we went and then we were in the band. Hmm? <laughs> and what was your first gig? Was it, uh, was it, was it in New York? I think CBG. All of our gigs were in New York, and I think it was CBGB. We'd play CBGB Max's and um, White's Pub, where Debbie worked. We played there sometimes. CBGB's got started in 1974, about? Um, well, that's when sure. we started going there because we were in the Palm Casino and we, we would run across the street to do guest spots with um, Eric Emerson, who was in. The Magic Tramps, and that's when we first started going. So it was open before that, but I think Hilly was trying to make it more of a country bar, and the Hells Angels kind of took over. They were hanging out there. That's when it was known as Hilly's before uh, the, the, the name CBGB really stuck. Yeah, I, I guess so. I think I think it had already. I think he had the awning up that said CBGB when we started playing there with Blondie. But, but we called it Hillies. But we always called it Hillies, yeah. I want to ask you, what was it like being part of the band in the early days? You know, not just of the band, but but a band that helped spawn this whole musical genre, that you know really heralded in the golden age of punk. What was it? What was it like experientially for you? Well, I I think, I mean, we loved it. Snooky and I, since we were born, have loved being on stage. We would make our mother watch our shows that we would put on. We would make the neighbors watch our shows. We would put on free shows in our neighborhood when we were really little kids. And then in intermission, we would sell Kool-Aid and um, other little things that we would make. So we were kind of entrepreneurs. But, but we, we were obsessed with downtown, and we'd take the subway down from the Bronx the last stop on the one train, and we'd take it all the way downtown. In our subway shoes. <laughs> in our flats, and we'd put on makeup all the way. And um, then we'd go to the clubs and, you know, see these bands. And when we were in the Palm Casino, we'd run across the street to see the Ramones. And it was such an exciting time. And I'm so blessed that I was a part of it. And around then... To watch it all grow, and, and it's just so amazing. It, it was like no other time, I think. And, um, you know, people are always asking us about it because I don't think it could ever happen again the way it did. It was all DIY and, you know, all the bands supporting each other and being each other's audiences and critics. And it was and it was magical. You can't imagine how empty the club was most of the nights in the beginning. It was such a tiny little scene that just grew so big so fast. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to uh, uh, continue the convers this part of the conversation about the music scene back in the mid seventies. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. To a lively studio tonight, uh, Rediscovering New York. Uh, tonight we're, we're talking about the golden age of punk and new wave in New York. My guests are Tish and Snooky Beloma, original members of the band Blondie, and John Holmstrom, who was one of the founders, or the founder of Punk Magazine, depending on uh, uh, whom you talk to. I want to uh, uh, pick up on something that uh, we talked about with Snooky right before the break. Snooky, you mentioned that you don't think that that the kind of environment and atmosphere that contributed to the, the creativity and the music could happen again. Why, why not? What was it that existed then that you don't think we have now? That well, you could get space relatively cheap. Like our space on St. Mark's Place was $250 a month when we moved in. Manic Panic? That was uh, 250 bucks a month? Yeah, on and we could barely scrape that together <laughs> every month. But we did. We were living at home in the Bronx with our mothers, so we were able to do it and just, you know, invest our money back into the business, whatever we made, and and be creative and, you know, run around the underground all night. And um, I just don't think people could do that. They they start internet businesses, but it's, you know, I don't, I can't imagine starting a brick and mortar business with $250 and, you know, <laughs> that kind of cheap rent and, you know, that whole kind of um, lifestyle. Well, it was different. I, I started hanging out in the East Village in the early 80s. It was still pretty, pretty different. <laughs> and, uh, I won't tell you some of the trouble we could get into back then, some of the after hours places and what was going on there, but it was definitely a different time and different, um, a lot of fun, and, but also very, very, very edgy. And speaking about edginess and, and music, John, how did you get involved with the Ramones originally and come to ultimately design their, their album covers? Well, we, I went to interview them in November 1975, this is before they had a record deal. Um, I had seen them in August at the Underground Rock Festival, and I'd read something about them in the Village Voice and something Lisa Robinson wrote in Cream, and it looked like a band I would like, and I loved them. And then uh, I did some work over the summer with a friend of mine, and he's like, oh, we should work together someday, put out a magazine. And then he dropped out of college. I found a really cheap storefront on 10th Avenue and 30th Street. I beat you. We only paid 195 a month. <laughs> we was robbed. <laughs> well, well we St. Mark's Place still was pretty happening back in the late yeah, 70s. Location, went, yeah, location, yeah, okay, location. Exactly. You had a lot more foot traffic than we did. So the story went over big. Uh, like I say in my slideshow for the Great Frog Show, it's opening on Thursday night at 6. Our photographs, I think, were the first time anybody saw the Ramones live. We were that early. So the Ramones loved the piece, and um, then they said, oh, we got a record contract, and we said, oh, we'll put you on the cover. Because we, we were going to put them on the cover, but then Lou Reed was in the audience, and he gave me a much better interview than, than the Ramones. <laughs> who are always tough to interview because they usually made everything up. <laughs> well, they were from Forest Hills. I suppose that had something to do with it. Well, that was true. I'm kidding, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, they claimed this was the first time they were in a band and blah, blah, blah. So we put them on the cover, and uh, they hired some expensive photographer. 
um, to shoot their record cover, and it came out horrible. And I had brought along Roberta Bailey, who worked the door at CBGB's. She did a shoot for us we couldn't use, but I, I could see she's very talented. And she shot the Ramones for us, and Danny Fields, the manager, calls us up in a panic. They need a picture of the Ramones for the cover, and Roberta took the perfect picture of the Ramones. That first album cover became so iconic. Not only that, but we did a photo comic of the, of the Ramones doing Blitzkrieg Bop in the centerfold with word balloons and photos by Danny Fields. They used that for the first single cover in the UK. And then Roberta took a picture of them that ended up in the first print advertising for the Ramones. And they were smiling. <laughs> they never smiled for a photograph again. They hated that picture. I've, I've rarely ever seen them in anything smiling. And, and I wanted to, to get a little personal about them for a minute. I mean, we all, you know, uh, uh, see them in the, their black jackets and their uh, in, in T-shirts and, and Joey with his, with his iconic sunglasses and that mop of hair on his head. You know, sadly, uh, none of the original Ramones are around, and so we can't talk to them and we, you know, find out what they're like. Um, can you share with us what they were like on an individual basis and as, a and, and as members of a new band who all of a sudden... Um, I don't want to say skyrocketed, but they, you know, they came into this, this notoriety. And what was it like for them to, to have experienced this and to, and to also be known as the pioneers of a, of, a, of a new wave in music? That's a lot of questions. Well, the first time I saw them in August, they came off stage. And back in the old days of CBGBs, there wasn't really a backstage. So instead of going backstage, they would just walk through the crowd. So I'm sitting by the bar. And I'm looking at them going, man, they look like tough guys. I wonder what they're really like. And it took me years to try to figure out, like, are they tough guys or are they, you know, cream puffs? And I'd have to say, like, when it came to Dee Dee and Johnny, they were pretty tough, you know? They were street kids. So, uh, you know, over the years, they became very successful, but they always felt frustrated. They wanted a hit record. But the music industry hated punk from the very beginning. When Rocket to Russia came out, and I did the, the uh, back cover for them with the pinhead going, riding a missile to Moscow, Sire Records brought out a press release that said, don't call it punk, emblazoned at the top. And they wanted to call it New Wave instead. Because was, punk was a four-letter word. But the Ramones always felt frustrated. They didn't get more uh, respect or more, you know, money for, for what they did. And th th now they do. It's ironic they're all gone. Mm. How many albums did the Ramones put out? I should know that, but I, I don't. If uh, you count yeah. reissues and everything else in singles, it would be hundreds. Mm. Um. Well, you know, we talked about uh, uh, CBGBs. You know, we really can't talk about punk and uh, what became New Wave. I always thought of it as New Wave just because the music seemed to evolve and change and it was a little more, little less rock and rollish, but with, you know, it had become m more varied. Um, aside from CBGBs and Hilly starting the place, what were some of the other musical venues that, that would showcase the new music in New York? And they were all downtown pretty much, weren't they? Yeah, Max's, Max's, Mothers. Max's, Kansas City. That was on Park Avenue South between 17th and 18th. Mm -hmm. Did you ever play the performance space? That's where the Ramones played the yes, first time. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Monty's, wasn't it? Wasn't Monty yeah. part of that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, we opened for the Ramones, or they opened for us when we were in Blondie at performance. That's right. We played a there times. a bunch of times with Blondie and uh, Tough Darts. Yeah played with us. We played on the same bill with Tough Darts, the Ramones. Mm. And then we also played, when we were in Blondie, we played in this place uptown called Brandy's. Or was Brandy's, it Brandy's Piano Two Bar on 83rd or 84th Street? There were two yeah. of them. I can't remember yeah. which one it was. There was one on the east side and one on, it might have been I think it was on the east Brandy's side. Two or something. Whichever yeah. one was on the east side is the one we played. And we asked the Ramones to open for us once and they did. 
and they were asked to stop playing and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a fun, uh, fun night to be there to see. Uh, and oh what my were, God! Cause what was their when response? They, when they went into, I now I want to sniff some glue. That was it. You know, uh. it, was like, it was like Ralph Cramden. That's it to the moon. You know, like, they loved us because we were, you know, three young women, and you know. We were girls and we were harmless. <laughs> <laughs> but the Ramones. <laughs> yeah. well, well, Not so much. I want to talk a little about the, the uh, cultural and societal aspects of, of punk. You know, it really was a movement. It wasn't just, it wasn't just a musical genre. Um, describe the energy of it, if you, if, if you can. And, and how did it differ as, or how did people who became involved in it think it was different or experience it differently than than other kinds of rock that had that had come right before it it was so exciting it was do it yourself and independent and you know fuck you you know you just have to know three chords and you can start a band and it, it was like nothing else it wasn't like arena rock it was rebellious well, I, I would say that there were forerunners to punk in some ways. Like, we all grew up learning about the Liverpool scene. And it, it, that was a rock and roll scene. Like or, the Beatles and uh, post-Beatles? When yeah, you Beatles, Liverpool. the British Invasion. Oh. And then in the late 60s, you had the hippie movement, and it was based in San Francisco. And that was a whole culture. You had the San Francisco poster artists and the underground comic books. And the fashion boutiques that were, that was very big in New York in the 60s. But it all died out by like 72, 73. And there was a vacuum for a while. There was nothing happening. So I think a lot of people in the media promoted punk because it was something new, something to write about. I remember our, our first photo shoot for the New York Daily News. They're taking a picture of us in the punk dump. And they're like, oh, you don't look punk enough. So they bought us some sunglasses <laughs> so we could, we could look punk, you know? So yeah, people understood what we were doing just with the, with the word, you know? Did the fans of punk, did they treat it, uh, did they treat the, the music and the bands differently from the way that fans of, of bands treated them? No, we still had groupies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want I, mean, I think the fans were a little more wild than maybe some hair bands or something. Where they, yeah, and they could you know get really up close and personal with the bands because it was such small venues. Yeah, I remember getting attacked by fans in CBGBs once in a while. There were some crazy people there. There were, yeah. That's why we liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well. To move to a little bit to the cultural aspect of it, did, did how people saw themselves as fans of punk, did, did that play any role in their appreciation of the music and their being fans of the bands? Did they, did they see themselves differently in their relationship with them? I know it's kind of an ethereal question, but did, did they see themselves differently in how they related to the music than um, um, fans of, of, of like psychedelic music and even of rock and roll and mod? Right before that? I think it was uh, like a, a home for uh, kind of misfits. And they were drawn to the punk scene because they didn't fit in anywhere else. They felt alienated maybe by, by things happening yes. in the culture? Yeah, I think so. And people didn't know where they fit. And then they found this home in punk. And it really was like a, you know, like a massive family there at CBGB and you know you felt like you could go there any night and still hang out and I think the fans were you know usually very cool there were of course the people who just came and I, I don't know like didn't really fit in and were there for um, you know just I mean I don't know maybe to rebel for a few minutes and then go home well mm. I would make the point that I consider punk rock to be the last true bohemian culture that existed and bohemians go back to like mark twain in san francisco around 1860 
and then later you'd have different bohemian cultures like in Paris, the art cafe scene. There's a great book called From Montmartre to the Mud Club that ties together the art cafe scene, early jazz, and punk. And pretty much what you're, we all did was kind of send up the bourgeois culture and rebel and make that a statement. I think we related a lot to beatniks because I think when we were little kids, we all watched Maynard G. Krebs on Toby <laughs> Gillis. <laughs> and then we had the hippies, but we uh. were decidedly anti-hippie because they were, they, by the 70s, early 70s, it kind of became a control culture where you had to follow rules and do what people told you to do. So we rebelled against that. So it was like anti-Bohemian Bohemian. It was like, you know, th this Bohemian culture has its rules and you had to abide by them. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it, disco was even more disfavorable to us. You know, the whole disco scene. I think that was something that um, just was so not us. Like mm. going out to discos and um, wearing those big wide pants. Bell <laughs> bottoms. Uh, all right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with John Holmstrom and Tish and Snooky Belomo. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to this special episode of Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Maiman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495-0317. Our show is about New York. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, there is a good one out there. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, that's me. And also follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we continue with our guests this evening, even though this is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not hosting it, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. We're back to a conversation with our guests, Tish and Snooky Belomo, original members of the Blondie, of Blondie band uh, back from the 70s, and also John Holmstrom, who was one of the founders of Punk Magazine and also designed album covers for the Ramones. Um, Tish and Snooky, how did you start Manic Panic? 
And and what was it about uh, when when did you get the urge to to branch out and to you know not just do music but to but to go into the retail business? Well, we were out every night at the clubs, either gigging at them or hanging out, and everybody liked our style. Everybody was always asking us where we got whatever we were wearing and where they could get it. So we said, well, let's just open a store as a sideline to our singing career and see what happens. And the good thing was we didn't need to open till noon, which was, you know, nice <laughs> rock and roll hours at <laughs> the yeah. crack of noon. And we'd usually be late. But um, we... Those we, were the days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we found this cheap space on St. Mark's Place. Um, we had a third partner in the beginning, um, our friend Gina Franklin, and um, we used to do rock and roll rummage sales at her loft, and yeah. I think that kind of got us started, and then we thought, well, let's rent something and open a store. Where was Gina's loft? It was on 2nd Avenue, right around the corner from St. Mark's. Oh, okay. Yeah. So right in the, right in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we called it a rock and roll rummage sale, but it was basically all our old <laughs> junk. <laughs> we had like, I think, a scarf that had belonged to Johnny Thunder, so that was what qualified it as rock and roll. Well, we also yeah. sold some of our old rock and roll clothes. I mean, whatever we didn't like anymore. Had some stuff we made, and <laughs> and manic panic continues to this day. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah. And how can uh, you want to talk about about your hair color line for a bit? Like oh sure, well. Um, and I'm looking. Uh, uh, Tish has this beautiful pink hair, and Snooky has this beautiful <laughs> blue hair. Uh, unlike the white hair on my head, which is not well, colored at the moment. Well, it's very easy to take care of that. <laughs> we can help you. I think green, maybe. That would be great, especially uh, green. Actually, is my favorite color. So I picked <laughs> up on we'll that. Yes. You up. <laughs> I'm an image consultant on the side. I'm only joking. Oh. So, yeah. so, so how can people find out about, about Manic Panic's products now and uh, look at what... Well, what we've got a website. and we're Manicpanic.com. And we're sold at Ulta, Sally Beauty, um, Hot Topic. And where else? We have our own... Uh, I mean, our website has everything. So, yeah, it's a, a whole line of, like, alternative <laughs> cosmetics and hair color. Nothing natural or normal. Thank all. God. Yeah, it's, that's not our style. It's all. <laughs> and we're also <laughs> going to be expanding into more and more um, items because we're licensing our name to other products. So that'll be So we're going fun. back to our roots because when we had our original store, we would sell everything we liked. We would never sell anything we didn't like. It was like not only beauty products, but clothing and shoes, accessories, band um, t-shirts, fanzines, magazines, and records. Yeah, lots yeah, of we, band t-shirts. We sold t-shirts. a lot of Ramones shirts, and um, you know, Arturo would bring them in and sell them to us and all the other bands, too. Oh, cool. Well, John, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the beginning of Punk Magazine and how it started and uh, how you got off the ground? Well, um, like I was saying earlier, we had a few thousand dollars from Jed Dunn Jr. He had he made money painting houses in Cheshire, Connecticut, and I helped him out. And uh, we wanted to put the dictators on the cover, but we called up the record company. They said they broke up and they'll never get back together again. <laughs> So we're like, oh, well, let's put the Ramones on the cover then. So we went down to CBGB's and talked our way in and interviewed them. And Danny Field says, Lou Reed's in the audience. And Lou was so nasty, but so nice. I hung out with him for hours. And he, we actually got a newsstand somehow. And Lou saw the magazine on the newsstand. And he was blown away. And uh, we became friends for several years. I ended up publishing his rapidograph drawings that he made during Metal Machine Music. Now, the interview we did was about Metal Machine Music, which I thought was the ultimate punk record, because it was a double album 
of nothing but feedback and noise. And the, 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 the fourth record actually had a loop, so it played for infinity. <laughs> hmm? uh, speaking about, about the culture of, of punk and the music back then, how did punk influence art in New York? Not just music, but other forms of art. How, how, would you, how, did, how, how did you experience the music influencing artists? Well, there were, there were artists all over the place. Um, when I went to School of Visual Arts, that's why I came to New York. I remember seeing Christina Blondie hanging out outside. He was a great photographer in addition to a great musician. And actually, when you talk about Eric Emerson and the Magic Tramps, they played our Christmas party at SVA, and Chris Dine was actually in the band for that gig. So it's New York. You had artists, musicians all hanging out together. But I think Punk Magazine had a very big influence on this because everybody knew what punk rock sounded like if you went to see a band like the Ramones, and you knew what they looked like, but we kind of gave a look to punk with the hand lettering and uh, mostly black and white and publishing photos of people like Tish and Snooky and Debbie Harry and people on the scene. So um, it, these Village changed in 1979. Up until 78, you could get that cheap rent on St. Mark's Place or get a cheap apartment. But in 79, it seems like every kid who was in high school who listened to the Ramones and punk rock moved to New York City to start their own band and become an artist. And suddenly they're paying $1,000 a month for apartments. Which mm. by not by standards today, yeah, everyone's like, $1,000 a month? Where can yeah. I find an apartment that's $1,000 a month? But there were artists like Michael Roman who never got um, really discovered, I mean, I feel, the way he should have. Um, I don't know if you know Michael Roman, but he was the one who did... Um, the luggage and the van in Desperately Seeking Susan. He did those kind of skulls and cats and stuff. Mm -hmm. He was um, an artist and a friend who used to come into Manic Panic and he did t-shirts and he did fabric and he did everything and it was all, it was so DIY. It was mm -hmm. mostly stenciled and um, his stuff was just amazing but he never really got recognized and he passed away a few years ago and I just thought he was one of the most amazing artists of those times because he was it was just free his art was totally free and um, he would pick up stuff on the street and just stencil or paint on it oh wow it's amazing you should look him up he's Really fabulous. Almost well, sounds the, like the, a modern-day David Smith just taking ordinary objects and, and, and turning them into, into creations just yeah. by welding them together. And then you also had Arturo Vega, who was like oh. the Ramones art director and designed their T-shirts. And yeah. he actually designed the Trash and Vaudeville logo. It, it, you know, and he was an artist who just decided to devote his life to working with the Ramones. So. He was amazing. And, and you know, it wasn't... I mean, he was walking art. He would, the way he dressed, the way he would uh, just present himself, and the, the work he did was amazing, and a lot of people didn't even know he did it. So you he know, Jean-Michel Basquiat graffitied our sign. We came in one day, and it said Samo with an R over our Manic Panic logo on the side, and we were so mad. Yeah, especially since <laughs> I hand-painted the sign. The, the yeah. sign was hand-painted by me, and he graffitied over it, and we were so pissed. So Tish went up on a ladder and scraped it off. Oh. Except, except for the little C. It was a C, not an yeah. R, a C no, for copyright. Like, so we, we left the C. Did you know Basquiat, or did, did he, did he do it knowing you? Or he, I don't, you we, we knew him, but we didn't really, you know, we weren't like, great buddies with him or anything. We knew him, and we were actually in, if you watch that um, movie that is a documentary, not the one that was made about his life. I mean, Downtown 1981 you're talking about? Yeah, Downtown yeah. 81. Downtown 81. We're actually yeah. in that. He comes to the store, and oh. he kisses me, and he waves to Snooky in the window. She's in the window doing yeah. 
I don't know, the mannequin or something. Hmm. Not he, doing the mannequin. No, but you know it was he I mean. who had graffitied our <laughs> No, I don't, think we, we <laughs> I don't think we associated it with him. <laughs> We probably drank a lot back then. Oh. <laughs> you think? I, <laughs> uh, I knew Basquiat. Uh, he would ask me to get him into the mud club because Steve Mass, I was very friendly with the owner. We had the first party ever at mud club. And he, so he would For those of you who don't get, know, the mud club was, uh, was in Tribeca. It, he would constantly get kicked out for spray painting the walls. He'd be, John, can you get me in? Steve kicked uh-huh. me out again. And the last time I saw him was right before the PS1 show opened. And he said, John, I'm going to become rich and famous. You know, I'm going to get discovered. And he told me all about the uh, show he was involved in. Wow. And that, that party, was that the party that Shrapnel played at at the Mug Club? No, we didn't have anybody live. It was after our Punk Awards disaster. We had a yeah, but I, th- I thought Shrapnel played. Oh, and they did. No, they, wait, did. No, they played at Club Hollywood. I we had they a show at the Mud Club. The thing that's about the night this I got night, punched in the jaw. This was the night that the news got out about Sid and Nancy. Like we had planned this award show to try to make some money, and then when this news came out, it was just a clusterfuck. Oh. Uh, Shrapnel played at Club Hollywood. Romanoli did a puppet show, um, and the audience was so f- cranked up, they destroyed the club. So we had an after party at the Mud Club, which was the no-name bar. Uh, and that was the, the first time, I think, Steve opened, right? That yeah. Was, yeah, and I went down the block to get a cab, and I got socked in the jaw, and I ended up in the hospital. Oh, I terrible. got knocked out. I have a glass mm. jaw. That's oh. terrible. Yeah, wow. because, but the reason I thought Shrapnel played there was because they came to help us when these this gang of kids were trying to beat us up and there was a big fight, a big street fight, looked like West Side Story. <laughs> and kids would come in from the suburbs to go punk bashing. Oh, gosh. Well, that's what punks. was happening that night. Yeah. There were carloads of Jersey teenagers looking for punks to beat up. And yeah. they beat me up because I, got, I ended up in the hospital. Oh, no. And I was, it's, it's one of the guys, one of the shrapnel roadies, I think it was, was on the ground and they were kicking him and I was like yelling at them and trying to get them away from him. And somebody tapped me on my shoulder and I turned around and they sucker punched me in the face. Oh. Well, we, we and have I woke to take up like five minutes later. Oh, gosh. Well, you're still here to tell the tale. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to finish up our conversation with Snooky, Tish and with John. Be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to our show about the birth of punk in New York and our guests, John Holmstrom and Snooky and Tish Palomo. Uh, Tish and Snooky, you have a book coming out next month, don't yes. you? Yes, we do. 
You want to tell us about it? Well, here oh, it right. Is. It's Manic called Panic. Manic Panic Living in Color. And will it be on Amazon? It, yes. Uh-huh. It'll be Everywhere. on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and ManicPanic.com. <laughs> of course. Yeah, we're really excited. What's What's the book about? It's um about Manic Panic, our history, some of our wacky adventures, and then there's also a lot about hair color and how to get the look. It's um, especially green. <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially yeah. green. Uh, John, many people are intrigued by your work in the 70s, but as a creative and commercial artist, your work had, didn't end in the 70s. What have you, what's, what have some of your work been since then and, and, and more recently? Well, I started a comics zine right after punk with a guy named Peter Bagg, who has become pretty well known, uh, then a fanzine called Stop, and then I went to High Times and I created a character named Hepcat with my good friend, Aid McSpade. And uh, we, we were very successful. Who's in the studio at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> we were very successful with that, and I've tried to revive that recently. We're, we're premiering a line of T-shirts on October 4th at Metropolis. Um, and then uh, I worked on the CBGB theatrical film. That was interesting. Uh, and that came out when, uh, in 2007 or 2008? Uh, no, it came up five, maybe five years ago. Okay. It didn't do mm -hmm. very well box office wise, but it was pirated all over the place. So everybody's seen it at least once. And Alan Rickman was in that. Uh, Alan, yes. I, I was yeah. on set for that. Ah, they, they brought okay. me down. I met Alan and I watched the scenes of me interviewing Lou Reed being shot and uh, filmmakers were just wonderful. And the name of that film is? CBGB. CBGB. I haven't seen it. Uh, I should see it. Um, and you have a show coming up, John. Yes, at 72 Gallery at 72 Orchard Street. It opens Thursday, 6 to 9. Same space as the, uh, the Great Frog. Same space as the Great Frog Jewelry Shop. They're going to wallpaper the back room with John Holmstrom and Punk Magazine artwork with the Ramones. I'm putting together some slideshows. A focus of the show is uh, Mutant Monster Beach Party. <laughs> Tish Yay! and Snooky appear Yay! in it <laughs> as surfer girls flirt with a lifeguard. Uh, Snooky gets molested by an octopus. <laughs> Tish gets, Lord have uh, mercy. Tish gets uh, sexually molested by the monster. <laughs> I don't uh, remember the, that. <laughs> there will there be a little bit of uh, John Holmesome artwork. Th thank you, Alliance Framing, for the frames. And Rima... DBN for helping produce it. And it's open to the public on Thursday? Open to the public and open until October 17th. And the opening uh, event is going till 9 o'clock, not just 8 o'clock. Right. Okay. I will be there on Thursday. Oh, good. Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. Um, what are you doing tomorrow? Tomorrow, um, I have something to do. Why? What's tomorrow? Oh, darn. <laughs> we have an event. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at Caveat. It's on Clinton 21 Street. Clinton Street in a basement. Uh -huh. And it's a very cool space. And it's a little event called um, Stories. Stories from Storytown. Storytown, yes. Stories from Storytown. And we're going to tell our story tomorrow. What time does it start? Seven. Seven o'clock. I actually am going to an event tomorrow for the Americana Music Festival in Dumbo at seven o'clock. So Darn. at seven o'clock on the nose. <laughs> um, and how late will you be going until? 8.30. Okay. Sadly, I can't, uh, I can't make it then, but oh, thank well. you for the invitation. <laughs> um, speaking more about, about punk and cultural in influences, did, um, we talked about uh, punk having influenced art and certainly fashion. Um, did punk influence filmmaking and movies? Road Warrior. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure, yeah. Well, Times Square, remember when that came out? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's and Smithereens, which Aid McSpade appears in. Uli Lamo made a movie called Blank Generation. And I had just returned from the Sex Pistols tour, where... The publisher Tom for, of High Times, Tom Frasad, was making a bootleg movie of the tour. I walk into CBGB's and there are dolly tracks 
and I watch a scene where uh, the camera shoots down the bar and has Richard Hell performing Blank Generation. You can see oh, that cool. several places. And Johnny Rotten was actually in the shot. Oh, that's you can funny. See him. Wow. He was at the bar. He had just left the Sex Pistols. So, and when wow. was this? What, uh, what year was this? This would have been, was being shot in 78. Oh. Richard Hell starred in it with Carol Bouquet, I believe. Was Sid Vicious still alive then, or had he already? Uh, huh? Was Sid Vicious still alive at that point, or had he already? Uh, yes, he was. Okay, he was in the hospital. He OD'd on the plane. Oh, and there was a blizzard, so nobody could visit him. He was all alone in his hotel room. Oi, I'm in a hospital room. Yeah. When they did Times Square, they wore um, the whole audience had plastic garbage bags on or something like that, and that was taken from us because in the Sick Fucks we wore garbage bags a few times. Wow. Did you ever see the punk rock movie? No. The porno. It it played on Times Square for like a week. <laughs> well, look, not that, I, not that I want to stop this fascinating conversation, but we are just out of time. We've had a great episode. I want to thank Snooki and Tish Palomo of Manic Panic and also original members of Blondie. Thank you so much for being on the show. And John Holmstrom, one of the founders of Punk Magazine and the designer of album covers for the Ramones. Thank you all for being on the show this evening. Thank afternoon. you for having yes. us. Yeah. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can also like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate broker. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team at Halstead and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the amazing Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love 
or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.